The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Van the Boogie Woogie Man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, John. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Uh, hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of That's what you need to do. I did not come here to see you dance, Disco. I did not come here to wrestle. I came here to show you why I'm the three times world karate champion. Chop him up. Best thing you could have done, yank the microphone away from you. Let's go on about it. Exactly. Whoa, man. Kicked him in the back of the head as the Disco Inferno was taking his uh, his ring jacket off. How about that for intensity from the cat? This might not take very long at all. The He's cat, out. as he said, three times a world karate champion, and now he hits it again with a tremendous kick for the cover. Two, three, that's it. Disco didn't even get that goofy shirt off. Incredible. He obliterated Cut the music on! What's this about? WCW tried to make me a wrestle. Try to make me this wrestler right here. I'm not a wrestler. I'm a three-time world karate champion. And there's nothing or no one in that locker room can do a damn thing to stop me. In this ring right now, 
you see a wrestler and you see a world karate champion. And there's nothing anyone can do to stop me because I'm the real deal. I'm the greatest. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling. And you are listening to another great episode here of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only JP, John Paz. And today on the show, we're going to dig into an interview that John recorded with a great performer, a former WCW and WWE superstar, the one and only Ernest the Cat Miller, joining the two-man power trip of wrestling today. And if you know anything about the story of Ernest the Cat Miller and his tie to professional wrestling and how he got into the world of professional wrestling, look no further than the one and only Eric Bischoff and Eric Bischoff introducing Ernest the Cat Miller to the world of WCW during the amazing time of the Monday Night Wars and Ernest the Cat Miller being the perfect sidekick, if you will, to the character of Glacier that we know was a staple of the early days of Monday Nitro. But first of all, the karate skills of Ernest the Cat Miller, a three-time world karate champion, an ISKA kickboxing world champion, uh, obviously going to be a perfect transition over to the world of wrestling where the karate gimmick has always been a staple of a wrestling promotion. And when you had somebody with the personality of an Ernest the Cat Miller, it always kind of played really perfectly together because he could kick your ass, but he could also talk a big game. And uh, whether he was working as a babyface or a heel, he was always so entertaining uh, during his time in the wrestling business. But, I mean, I would think you'd think about his time in WCW as the, uh, the pinnacle of his career. He ended up being such a vital part of the shows towards the end of WCW, playing the commissioner, the, uh, the Super Brawl dance-off with James Brown, uh, one of those just kind of surreal moments in the history of professional wrestling. Uh, but I would say the introduction by Eric Bischoff uh, being that Ernest Cad Miller was Garrett Bischoff's karate instructor. Uh, that's a hell of an introduction. That's a hell of a way to break into the business and to literally know the right guy at the right time. Uh, you can't really knock uh, the fact that sometimes it's fate. And to bring a personality like Ernest Miller into the business, I think we all owe Eric Bischoff a debt of gratitude for helping Ernest Cat Miller make his way into WCW. But that's also not to discount the time that Ernest the Cat Miller spent in the WWE in the early part of the 2000s after the WCW purchase. And after all the WCW mainstays had kind of gone by, we saw Ernest the Cat Miller join the WWE in 2003, 2004. And uh, somebody better call my mama his catchphrase. Well, guess what? We ended up hearing that theme song that he had for many, many years down the road, but more tied to Brodus Clay than it actually was to Ernest the Cat Miller. But the time he spent in the WWE, it was good. It definitely could have been used a little bit better. He did a lot of work on Velocity, but he also did some color commentating. And you know what? I I think that there was a little bit of a missed opportunity with Ernest the Cat Miller. Uh, Maybe if he had come in around the Alliance era, maybe there was a better chance that he had that opportunity to uh, be one of those main stars. 
But I feel like that time that it took to get him in may have cost the fan who knew him from WCW uh, a little bit of time in uh, either wanting to see him back or uh, getting to know him. And sometimes those WWE fans, if they don't know you, then they don't support you. And that could have been what happened there with Ernest the Cat Miller. But we say somebody better call my mama. What a catchphrase. You'll hear that, obviously, in his theme song, which was one of the greatest that WCW created, especially in the mid-'90s. I mean, so catchy, such a perfect, perfect pair for Ernest the Cat Miller. And uh, so happy to have him on the show. And John did a great job with this interview that we are going to get you over to right now. But before we do that, we want to remind you that if you listen to the Triple Threat Podcast, please stay tuned as we are moving the Triple Threat Podcast over to Vince Russo's The Brand. You can head over to Russo'sBrand.com for the subscription information. And if you enjoyed the franchise before in audio form, Get ready because we are going to be bringing you a video experience so you get to see the pretty faces of myself, JP, and the franchise Shane Douglas on a weekly basis. So looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, we're going to wrap it up here now. So let's hit you with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business and get it on over to the cat, Ernest Miller. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr. Glenn Kane, Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, a former WCW and WWE superstar, a three-time world karate champion, and an ISKA kickboxing world champion somebody better call his mama here is Ernest the cat miller please enjoy i'm the greatest one two Oh. Huh. 
on the line. He's a former WCW and a WWE superstar. You may know him as a three-time world karate champion. He is Ernest the Cat Miller. Mr. Miller, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Now, you kind of briefly mentioned before we started rolling, um, you're still teaching karate and you're still kind of, you know, in the world of karate. What are you, you know, what are you still doing? You're still kind of teaching a lot or you kind of slowly stepping away from the karate world? Well, you know, not really. I, I have karate schools. I have, um, I have six karate schools here in Atlanta and throughout Florida. Um, so I probably have about maybe 250 to 300 students. So uh, that's what I do now. I just teach uh, teach kids and help them with the martial arts. And uh, I also compete sometimes in the 40 and up uh, divisions. Wow, that is great. Still competing. How, how are you faring? Are they kind of nervous that they're competing against, uh, you know, obviously a former world champion? You know what? Let me just say there's no easy fights because once, once they – Figure out and see that they fight me. Everybody put forth their best effort. That is true. That's like when a baseball team kind of upsets the Yankees or when they did upset It's because they're always putting their best effort forward when they play the Yankees. They play somebody else. They're not putting that much effort. That is very true. Now, obviously, you're teaching karate. So you said you got six schools. You got so many students. Any students kind of as famous as some students back in the day that you had uh, before you got into WCW? You know what? I got. I, I also I teach Usher Raymond kids sometime when they're around. So you know, I teach. You know, but most of them are just kids. You know, they everyday everyday kids. You know, so. You know, the the famous one are just like the, the other ones. You know, so there's not really any difference between the kids that I'm teaching. Now you are obviously, you know, former three-time world champion, and that's kind of how you got noticed by WCW. But what is kind of the story behind that? How did you end up getting into the wacky and crazy world of pro wrestling, transitioning in from karate? Well, you know what? I was teaching uh, karate, you know, for a, 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 a big chain of karate schools called Joe Corley Karate. And I was teaching for him, and one of the students happened to be a guy named Garrett Bischoff. And uh, Garrett Bischoff, of course, father is Eric Bischoff. So, you know, just like anybody else, they will bring the kid to drop him off at karate, and sometimes they'll hang out and just watch us and watch class. And, uh, you know, from there, just kind of evolved into, like, okay, we we, we got a um, relationship to what. Eric would come in and sometimes talk about it, and we would just sit down and talk. And one day he asked me to be in the class, you know, asked me to be in the karate ring. Were you a fan of pro wrestling at all? Like, were you familiar with that? No. Were you familiar with Eric Bischoff at all? No, like I said, karate ring, he really didn't kind of approach me with the wrestling stuff. It was almost an approach to where he wanted to – get me ready to go to uh, Japan to fight, hmm. you know, so-called martial arts, uh, K-1, and stuff like that. So that's why our original uh, conversation was about, initial conversation was about, was about bringing me into pro wrestling, getting me ready to go over there and be able to face wrestlers and karate guys in Japan. 
It is very interesting the you know, the way you kind of got in, obviously different than anybody else kind of went in teaching Bischoff's kid and you meet Eric. And then obviously Eric did have very strong ties to Japan, not only new Japan for wrestling, but also K one. And, you know, obviously he's always kind of making deals and things like that. So when you slowly, but surely are being kind of morphed into a pro wrestler and getting sent to WCW, how does that all work? Like, how does that kind of change from kind of K one? And then you're going to go into WCW. Well, you know, the, the plan was, okay, you come in to, Work with us, WCW. We'll get you ready to maybe work work in Japan where you can go. You know, the plan was like maybe I can go over to Japan a, a couple of times a year, earn months, some good money, and come back and teach my kids. And uh, so I kind of went with that plan. But once we got into the got into it, I was training in the school and to wrestle. Of course, he thought, okay, we can build. If the plans kind of change. It's kind of plays when I joined the uh, Glacier thing because mm-hmm. at that time, Glacier, they had already had that plan out. So they had that thing with Mortis and Glacier and Brian Adams. They had all that stuff going on. So they said that, you know, okay, this is a karate thing, martial arts. So, I, you know, I was a fan of Mortal Kombat, so I kind of watched it. But right before the pay-per-view, uh, Glacier hurt his ankle, and the match had no karate in it. And I wasn't supposed to be like a WCW wrestler. I was supposed to be training in a power plant for New Japan and stuff like that, K1. But when they asked me, when, when Glacier got hurt, and they had put so much money into this gimmick, you know, a Glacier that they they didn't want it to fail, so, of course, they what can we do? And they said, okay, we... We need you, Ernest, to go out and just do a couple of kicks just to kind of, com- you know, confirm the martial arts in here. So, you know, I, I came out. I did my, my debut on the pay-per-view. I did a bunch of kicks and stuff like that. And it kind of it sort of went really well. And they said, okay, we want to make you a part of this right here. So the plan changed. So now the plan was what we'll do here, we'll build you up in WCW, just build your name up. And then add that to you being a shooter in martial arts and send you over to Japan with a bigger name and and you know, and you'll probably grow faster. This is kinda of like a maybe a super question or a crazy question, but when you go from kind of the karate world and they're training you but you're kind of you're still mixing it up for real shooting, if you will, and then they want you to go in there and throw some pro wrestling style kicks. Is that hard to do because you got to make it look good, and obviously you are, you know, legit. So is it hard to kind of transition and do the pro wrestling style and not hurt somebody? Not, not for me. You know, not, not for me because it, the karate part of it and the fighting part of it was already, it was already there. I already achieved like a high level, you know, competing and fighting. I've been, you know, because I was a kickboxing champion too. Yes. Before I came into it, so I had all that was taken care of. But what this was doing for me is being able to work with wrestlers and be and add and kind of build that side of it and help me to be more entertaining when I was fighting. So, you know, and it was it was good working with professionals, people who actually practice this stuff. You know, so it wasn't yeah. that hard. 
And obviously the, the Glacier gimmick, I know Ray Lloyd does have somewhat of a martial arts background, but when you watch him and, and obviously he's kind of doing the karate thing, the Mortal Kombat thing, what are your thoughts on it? You're thinking like, man, you know, this needs a little bit of a boost or this needs some legitimacy or kind of you're just kind of just doing whatever that's being told and you're just kind of getting ready for Japan. <laughs> I was just doing whatever. At that time, you know, I, I, like I said, I didn't grow up wanting to be a wrestler. So at that time, I was just doing my job. They said, hey, Cat, we need you to go out. Ernest, no, we need you to go out doing this pay-per-view match and, and kind of kick and do this. So I just went along with the, uh, you know, with the plan. So as so as we went along with the plan, you know, it was entertaining. You know, to me, I like seeing these guys in their work and Glacier and doing what they would do with entertainment. You've seen you've seen better uh, that karate you were looking at was better than some of the karate movies we probably went to see or uh, seeing some guys on TV that were supposed to be real karate guys. But you know, those guys were better. Glacier and those guys were better. So I seen worse and I see better martial arts. So to me, it was just the entertainment part of it was really fun. And obviously you end up teaming with Glacier and you feud with Mortis and Wrath. And it's more, it's weird at this point, WCW, because with the NWO and how gritty it was, and that was more realistic. And then you guys were like kind of the other side of the spectrum, almost doing the Mortal Kombat stuff, almost kind of being that more sports entertaining kind of colorfulness. Did you find that strange at all? Or, or did you find that like, man, what, what are they up to? Is it, is it some marketing thing? Like how come, you know, we were kind of, more cartoon, not what is a cartoony, but more colorful. And the NWO is, you know, they're very gritty and they're they're kind of more realistic. And well, I just thought it was just part of the routine. You know, you got you, you got gimmicks that are gritty, then you got some that are, are playful, and and you know, it's to me, it's still part of the show. And I think it's what the show needed. Not everything needs to be dark on the show. You know, you needed some mm-hmm. some fun, loving music, you know, kind of thing to kind of create a show for everybody, not just one. Because everybody everybody was in, I mean, there was a lot of people into NWO, but there were some who wasn't into that that, that type of wrestling and that type of TV. You know, you, know, you want to have something for everybody. And I think that mode right there fits some people, but I don't think they put enough effort and time into making sure that it got over, you know. Because you did have, you know, the NWO and stuff. I think if it was at a different time, it probably would have been better, you know? Absolutely. And obviously they put a lot of creative juices into the NWO and not as much into the, you know, the, the other program, you know, other part of the program. That's uh, that's for sure. But as far as Wrath and as far as Mortis, is Mortis, Mortis and Rap. Thanks for reminding me of those names. So somebody yes. got, I just know their real names. So I forget about Raptor Mortis. Yes. Yes. Um, was you know your training at the power plant? Obviously, Chris Canyon was a was a trainer down there for obviously a period of time. Was he kind of one of your trainers? Were you familiar no, with him no, at all? Not at all. Chris was not like one of my trainers. I was trained by Sarge. Oh, okay. No, uh, you know, by the by the time I got there, this this how far along it was. By the time I got there, they already had the gimmick together. They were already working together and everything, you know. So they was kind of they were kind of in, into the um, project once I got there. 
when I got, by the time I got there, they were a couple of weeks or maybe a few months into the project already. And they had no idea that I was coming on board. And time just worked out that way. Were you comfortable immediately? Because obviously transitioning from karate to wrestling has got to be tough. Were you comfortable immediately in the ring? Did it, like, How long did it take? Did it take you time to get adjusted and more comfortable into the pro wrestling ring? Well, you know, Fighting, you got the cage, you got the ring, you got you got a, you got the platform, you got everything. Fighting when you're doing professional fighting is not you're not just fighting an opponent. You fighting against the element that they give you as you have to survive in. So I was accustomed and used to being in a ring. So the ring didn't scare me, but the what kind of it's just the timing of everything. You know, everything was a give me. It wasn't a take me. You know, when you when I'm fighting an opponent who we trying to knock my head off and I'm trying to knock his head off, it's all about take. Who can overtake? But when you're working in pro wrestling, in the pro wrestling ring, it's like give. You give it to them so they can make it look good or, or make it work, you know, for TV. You think that the training you had for karate and kickboxing was hard, or do you think the pro wrestling training is even harder? Oh, no, man. Kickboxing was real hard. Kickboxing, karate, I mean, you really, because you don't know what you're going to need when you get to that fight. So, you know, you had to really overtrain. You had to train hard. You had to damn near kill yourself in the training process just to make sure you have enough when the actual fight comes, just in case you went 10 rounds. You know, when you're wrestling, you know you're going to go up every five to ten minutes. Tip that, you know. So it's easy to prepare a match for five minutes. But, you know, it's hard to prepare for the unknown. So the pre- preparation and and, and uh, working out and all that stuff, of course, it was harder for a um, kickboxer. I'm always curious with karate and kickboxing, and obviously there's a lot of similarities, but there is some differences. And you see guys that go from the karate world into the kickboxing world, they don't always have immediate success. Is that, you know, is that a kind of a tough transition for some guys? Because, for instance, you see a guy fighting today like Raymond Daniels, who's a great fighter from the karate world. He had some issues dealing with some of the more experienced kickboxers. Do you think that's a big issue, or was that ever an issue from you, transitioning from karate to kickboxing? See, you, karate is just what you said. Karate is a system of martial arts, mostly with self-defense kicks, not a lot of punch in the hands. Now, when you transfer from karate to kickboxing, kickboxing is just exactly what it said is, kick and boxing. So my training background was a little different from a lot of them because I started in karate, and then in, when I was about 9 or 10 years old, I decided to box. So I started boxing. I fought in the Golden Glove here in Atlanta. You know, I fought in the Golden Glove when I was 12 years old. So when I came back to karate, I was a different kind of fighter because here I am. I'm a karate guy who also got good boxing skill. So it was able to work in. So when I transitioned into kickboxing, I was beating, I was knocking everybody out. My first 10 fight was all knockouts. He wore headgear on. It was an amateur with headgear on. It was all knockout. What I fought one professional fight, and the only reason I didn't fight no more 
because what happened here in this area of Atlanta and Florida and the Carolinas here, what happened is um, people, you know, news travel fast when you're pretty good. So, you know, you would train maybe three months. You did set a fight. Then you train, you start your training three months out, hard training to where you damn near kill yourself. And then the week or day of the fight, the fighter don't show up. They drop out. And you're not getting paid a lot of money to do kickboxing in the first place. So you put your life on hold for three to four months just to get to the fight game and, you know, your fighter drop out. So it was a little difficult for me to kind of continue to kind of want to do that when there wasn't any money in it. It is, when you look at it sometimes, it is crazy that that some of the guys do go from a certain background into kickboxing and, you know, you don't see the success because it is, it is such a different sport, and it is great that you had that background because, you know, you you were used to the punches. But, and, but you know what? You, you brought up Raymond Daniels, and this mm-hmm. is the difference in karate. In karate, you taught to take somebody out really fast. If I said this, if I got five guys that I'm fighting at the same time, if I can get off five techniques, all five guys to be down and out, it's not about setting people up for later rounds or something like that. It's about disposing of the person right now, getting rid of that person right now. And that's what Raymond Daniel, if you watch Raymond Daniel, he got some great knockout things. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. Highlight reels where he actually took guys out, and that's what karate guys are. You got the element of surprise. They don't know what you're going to do to them when you're fighting a, a karate guy. It could be a kick, a lightning fast spinning kick. It could be anything, but that don't, doesn't work when you get a guy who understand those techniques and can withstand no one twos, like a kickboxing or Muay Thai guy, because they are set to kind of wear you down and finish you off. You know, so that's what Raymond Daniel have a problem with. Because you know, if you cannot, if you cannot. If you cannot finish the guy with your technique as a karate guy and he's a kickboxer or something, he's going to wear you down. He's going to take your, your best stuff till he's going to beat you up till you quit until you flat face down on the mat. Very well said. Now, with you, I, I've noticed this, that you can transition to different things, like you mentioned, boxing, kickboxing, karate, and obviously pro wrestling. And I noticed one thing in the pro wrestling thing that you definitely adapted to quite well. You turn heel, you join Sonny Ono, and the, and the sports entertainment value with you is just, like, so easy and so smooth for you. Did you think that, you know, it was going to be just, like, you know, a flick of the switch, kind of like it was for you? Were you able to show that personality? Because I always thought, like, wow, you, like you never knew that this guy had this charisma, and then all of a sudden you turn heel, and boom, you see all you know this huge personality that you had. But you, but you know what? I, I, thanks for saying that. But I felt like I had so much more to give wrestling, you know. But at the time, the the, the way the wrestling was going, then it was like it was out of control, you know. It's like we don't have time to develop you. If you don't already come ready, 
you they, you know, they'll just drop you by the side of the road and move on to the next one, you know. So, you know, I just happened to be in a time with Eric Bischoff to where NWO was so was so uh had a head of steam that I was able to develop into that person that people like, the charisma, the the heel kind of person because they gave me time to. When I went to WWE, it was totally different. WWE was the only thing around. So they didn't need to give you time to feel your way around. If you didn't come ready, which I don't think they gave a lot of, of, of doing that transition. I don't think they gave a lot of attention to any of the WCW guys because a lot of them came over and, and went. they came in the front door and then went right out the back door. Totally agree. They kind of screwed the the uh, the WCW guys a bit. They didn't really give didn't <laughs> really give gonna, any of them a chance. I wasn't gonna go that far, but you know, <laughs> it, it did. You know, and and people look at it. I mean, Goldberg, Goldberg, a, a hell of a talent when he was in WCW, big name. But see, you know, his first time over, they didn't do much with him. You know, he <laughs> beat a couple of guys, but they didn't tell a story around it to get him over like he. Like I thought he could possibly get over. But, you know, hey, who am I? I was only in the business for five years. You know, these are guys who who created the business. So, you know, I can't, can't second-guess them. They definitely screwed up with Goldberg. The booking was terrible when he was there, and he hated it the first go-around. The second go-around a couple of years ago was much, much better yeah, for, but him, for him. Or it's just the way you want it, short and sweet. They know mm-hmm. him. You know how much time. he knew what he had when he went in. The day he signed with them, he was he told me all about it. He knew how long he was gonna be with them. He knew what they wanted him to do. All he had to do is play that part. And for that time, you know? But when you when you first come when when they were signing us to come in the first time, they give you a three year deal. You don't know how long they're gonna want you before they just give up on you. You don't know how much time you have to develop, you know. And uh, a lot of people like Chris Canyon really can, got got torched or got hurt by that, you know, because Chris, that's all he knew was uh, wrestling. He loved wrestling so much he, he gave it all, you know. And uh, once WWE said that they didn't want him anymore, you know, he kind of lost it a little bit, I think. Definitely, unfortunately, for sure. And he was definitely one of the underrated great wrestlers that I kind of, you know, they go under the radar, so to speak. And and I just remember, obviously, you feuding with him as, as uh, when he was Mortis. But when you when you later on feuded with him when he was Chris Canyon, the heel character, just as himself, I remember that feud was very good as well because he was really starting to come into his own. And then I'm talking about the, the dying days of WCW, of course. I don't think WC. That's why I beckon the, the difference. You know, a lot of people said WCW were dying. I think, I think wrestling got so high in like the nineties and stuff like that during that time. The money and wars, yeah. Yeah, it had to come down, and I think it will come down just to settle into its area of the, of the spot. Our numbers were still better than the numbers they do it today when it yes. comes. To Yep. So I don't think I don't think it was dying. I think like think about it. 
man, see, you know, how long could it run at the level that we're running? Well, I've heard, I heard rumors of Monday Night Nitro and Monday Night Raw were doing the number of doing so well that Monday Night Football, they've been coming on for a long time, but thinking about changing the night. You know, because everybody watching Monday night all uh, night join Monday night raw. That was such a great time uh, to be a wrestling fan too. You know, switching the channels, going back and forth. Everybody was watching. I mean, tens of millions of homes are watching wrestling at that period. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, man. You could be let me tell you, you could be at our show and see some of the biggest superstars in acting and all warts of entertainment. You can see them back in the back with the kids, with their family. They were fans. I'm just saying, you know, it was doing so good that when it started to taper off a little bit and people started saying, oh, the business is dying, a lot of people back didn't panic. And the reason they didn't panic is because they know we're doing tens and nines and stuff like that. Now we're doing twos and threes. That's one. That's still one of the top-rated shows on on the network, cable network. Crazy. And at that point, obviously, you're coming into the business at its hottest point, and WCW's hottest point. Ninety-seven is their best year, and you're making your debut. That's a huge kind of standout moment because not a lot of guys can kind of get thrust out there and be a part of WCW at this point because that is heavy, heavy competition, especially yeah. considering that at this point, you know, during the 83 weeks, really more than 80, 83 weeks, if you really look at it, WCW was kicking WWF's ass at this point as well. Now, now let me tell you this right here. Think about this. I'm a new guy, new talent. They don't know anything about wrestling. But one thing that I was pretty good at, most, from what I understand, most of the people like me, Hogan and, from Hogan to Hall to Nash, they all was open to me. I could always go and knock on their door and sit down and ask them questions about the business. So I had that, you know, I had that in my pocket right there that I could talk to anybody if I needed to know something. But, you know, it was so funny, man, to where here I am in a business now to where you see people like Dirty Dick Slater, uh, some of the old great still around, still on the contract with WCW. You know, I mean, it was a lot of good talent that, that was on Saturday shows and, and, you know, the Thursday night shows. So I wasn't just competing against the ones who hot on TV now, like the Nashes, the Hall, the Ray Mysterios, and the Disco Inferno, Alex Wright, all in between. I had to compete with all those guys on TV, but then you had a whole army of guys. Man, we had so many guys under contract. That was unbelievable. WCW's roster was stacked beyond belief, but also they had so many guys. You're right. I mean, whew, do even, you know, they do the World War Three. They had 60 guys involved just in, in the, the main event itself with that big battle royal. So, I mean, man, that roster was, and they was all. And they was all named guys. I mean, they wasn't like just somebody they would pick up off the street and just say, hey, let's get them a chair. And they wasn't indie guys. They were guys who had actually made a name in WWF and WCW. Crazy. And you definitely helped yourself stand out doing the kind of the Muhammad Ali mixed with James Brown, the I'm the greatest, you know, that that gimmick. Is that something that you came up with on your own make, just to make sure you kind of stood out? You know, it wasn't just something I came up with, something 
you know, they all did something. Scott Hall told me, hey, be the person you, you, you used to watch when you were young. But the thing is, as a person like me, very athletic. I played pro football. I did karate. You know, I've done it all. Very athletic. People knew I was very athletic. I could go in the ring and learn to wrestle. You know, I was power playing. I could wrestle. I could train wrestle. I could do all that stuff. But then again, I said, you know, if I start wrestling, now I got to compete against Chris Benoit. I got hmm. to compete against Eddie Guerrero. I can't wrestle with those guys like that. I just fall right into the mode of being less than what they got out there. But if I continue to stick with my karate stuff and never try to wrestle, it'll make me different right there. So that's why I decided to stay with my karate stuff. You know, we we went down to the power plant a few times. Sarge used to work us work work my butt out like I was a wrestler. And I actually used to put on some good matches. You know, wrestling. No karate, just wrestling. But then I said, you know, I get on TV, I said the best thing to do is be different. Give people something different to see. And it makes perfect sense. And I even remember those funny um, that Billy Blanks kind of like Tybo comedic parody infomercials, like That's that was right. even so different and, and would make you stand out above those other guys. Now, let me tell you a story about that. So they were just going to do that just that one time. So the way they were going to set it up, they were going to set up as an infomercial and, and I'm doing the Billy Blanks stuff. And then they said, okay, we got to get a fake number. So got a fake 800 number. And the 800 number is like, it was a fake number. If you call that number, what happened, it arranged and it said, please hold. You know, for the Nate's available assistance, something like that, please hold. And it will make people hold for so long that it never was intended to have an answer uh, operator to pick up from that point on. So, <laughs> so. But people were holding on so long that the calls were rolling in to the CNN center, oh the God. main switchboard, because people were really trying to get and, and, and trying to order the, the videos and stuff, because they thought it was a legit thing. <laughs> that is great. That's when you know you had the fans right there, then and there. That's oh. how you know it was great. And you think about some other classic things you did, the the red slippers, the dance, the signature kicks, so much kind of great stuff. And, and you know, it, it, all that stuff was fun. Most of it was there to entertain my friends in the back, some of the boys, you know. And they thought, and it was so fun, that's when you know you got the crowd because you got the attention of some of the guys in the locker room. You know, people like Hogan. You know, Hogan, when, when I turned heel, Hogan was a fan. Hogan actually went to the booking committee and asked them, so right now, Cat is the hottest heel we have. He's over, you know, as a heel. He, stays, he said, listen, I want to work, uh, uh, I want to work something with the Cat to where he actually – steal the belt from me, win the belt, the world title, and then I chase him to get it back. I mean, that's what he wanted to do, but then the office said no. And the only reason the office said no, because at that time they were thinking about putting the belt on me and wanted me to carry it for a little longer than two weeks. 
you know. And what actually ended up happening? They they just said no, and they well, wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't the revisit whole, it. The whole booking committee just kind of changed. You know, that's when that's when uh, I think Vince Russo came in and. Uh, Eric went out, and Hogan, you know, went out. That's when they sent the Million Dollar Club home and just started using some of the young blood. Yes. Yep, remember that time uh, pretty well there for WCW. And I felt like even at that point, they were kind of still kind of discovering that you had great promo ability because I feel like – you really could show your range. And even when they made you like the commissioner and you were cutting those promos, I feel like they kind of knew that you were a great talker and they kind of put you in the commissioner role. They can get over some of the things that they really wanted to try to get over. But you know what they did with me? They let me be me. They didn't try to change me. You know, I'm not going to pull out a dictionary and throw all these big words at you, but I can get across my point of view by being who I am. You know, I'm a, I came from a small town here in Georgia, Decatur, Georgia. You know, I'm a Southern boy. They never tried to change me. So that gave me the strength and the power and the confidence to go out and deliver lines the way I want to. You know, now you got you got people who complain about people when they sound different, when they say different things, you know. You got people now that's online, you know, talking about, well, you know, I don't know what this guy's saying. I don't like his attitude. I don't like his person. So this right here don't allow guys to be who they are. They got to be actors now. If you want to work, you got to be an actor unless they get you in that same mold as the rest of them. As far as as that, I was going to say, do you think that having to be – you know, remembering lines and them making you be a certain guy like they do today. You think that really hurts the guys where, like, you, you were able to be yourself and be a character and kind of show your range and things like that? Do you think that just kills the business today and makes these guys not as relatable or likable? You know what? I don't watch it like I used to, so I don't know if it's killing the business or if the business is dead. But to me, you know, think about an artist. Think, think about somebody who can just paint somebody who can write, just an artist, write music, they don't want to be told what to do to create something. They can just create something out of their own mind and their own way that's beautiful to more than just themselves, you know? So that's an artist. So how can you, if you can't create something, you know, do that hurt you? Uh, uh, it's, are, are, are you okay with just following in line, you know, standing Knowing your place, me, I'm a I'm an artist. You know, tell me what we what you want, and I can visual see it. I can visually see it, and I can kind of create it with a promo. I feel like it's just a you know it's a lost art kind of missing, and they don't let these guys today kind of be who they're going to be. And then you know, for you, for instance, if they did that, you wouldn't be able to kind of you know, branch off and be, you know, with the dancing and the James Brown routine, or even, you know, take it a step further, even they wouldn't have the the, the eyes on, hey, on hey, Super Bowl, you know, at that point, as they bring James this. Brown in. Yeah, but think about this. Right now, wrestling is using wrestlers to tell their story. They already got a written story. The story is already written out. 
Now yes. we can just use these these people to tell our story. Instead of letting these instead of us telling their story, you know what I'm saying? It's like WCW let me tell my story. Yep. They, let me, they say, okay, we're going to give you five minutes to go out here. You go over, you know, you do a kick and do this. Now all I had to do is come out and create my story. Okay, why do I not like this guy? Why are we, why are we wrestling this guy? Why, why am I kicking this guy? I was able to, to deliver a message and tell the story by being creative, you know, myself. You know, they didn't come out and say, okay, this is the, this is the backdrop of, of, of Monday Night Nitro leading up to Stampede or something. Okay, we're going to tell the story where we got this black guy who's fighting, his bad, fighting everybody just to get his first shot at the title. Now, you do this, you do that, and do that. No, no, they didn't do that. The WCW actually lets you go out and tell your story, and they made your story part one of the stories that you were seeing on TV, which to me made pro wrestling at its best when they used to show wrestling here in Atlanta one time. They showed wrestling. It used to come on at 11 o'clock p.m., and you stay on at like 3 or 4 o'clock, and they will show all the different territories, NWA and all up through Pennsylvania and everything. And the reason I used to want to stay up and watch this was because I got to see so many different wrestlers. You know, I didn't just have to see one type wrestler. Every time I turn on Monday night, I didn't have to see, you know, I didn't have to see Hogan. I didn't have to see the Macho Man. You know, you got to see people that you've hardly ever seen before with a different look, a different story, a different background, different size, different physical, talk different. And that what made me a fan because I got to see all these different different guys, different wrestlers. Now, you watch Monday night, you're going to see the same people over and over talking. To, listen, you're going to see the same wrestling. They may be saying something different, but they all sound the same. You can turn the TV down and still watch the same show and think about what they said two weeks ago and know exactly what they're saying because they're not changing. You cannot change like that. And if you think about this, as you're creating your own character, kind of the Muhammad Ali slash James Brown character, they never would have been able to get James Brown in because that character never would have been created, never would have the necessity, so you don't get those extra eyeballs on, on that program that normally aren't watching. So that was kind of a pretty cool thing. It's like, well, you created this James Brown-like character, then they actually bring in James Brown to kind of be a part of the show. And, that, and that's exactly right. They didn't even have to pay him to do that. He wanted to do it because why not? This guy right here is doing my stuff. Let me go in and work with him, get on the TV, get on the show with him, and have fun. See, think about it. That's what wrestling was like at its best, when people were just wanting to come and show up just to be on the show. Now you can ain't no telling how much money they paying guys now to come in. You know, they had Mayweather. Mayweather didn't come and do that for free. No. You know, I mean, they had different people from different sports. You know, they didn't come in and just say, okay, we're going to do this for free because we like watching this show. We like what you're doing. No. 
we want to get paid. And you think about that, which is which was great. And obviously, James Brown is a huge, huge megastar coming in for free. It's just unbelievable. What was that kind of experience like for you? Did he really have a lot of fun out there with you? Because it seemed like you know a pretty funny segment. Look at his face, man. That's James Brown, who mm-hmm. who the man. You know what? If uh, if you don't know the history of James Brown, I think you should kind of study the history. Not study, but just look at any kind of information, video, YouTube, a story about James Brown. And then I'll tell you, this is a, one of the biggest rock and roll hall, music hall of fame around. This guy to entertain whole countries. You know, he's been to Africa, France, had his own. He was the first artist to have his own private jet, have his own radio station. This guy right here was entertaining everybody, right? Now, here he is in, a, in San Francisco in a wrestling ring. Look at his face. Look at his face. The whole time he was in the ring, he had this glow smile on his face like he was a little kid having a great time doing something new. He wasn't frowning and trying to be enjoying himself. Matter of fact, one of the things he did the most is I forgot all about asking him to do it. It was like I gave the cake part, which, oh, man, I grew up watching him do that. I grew up when he used to drop to the floor. When they were saying it's time to go, he would drop to the floor and say, please don't go. And then the little man come out there and shake that cake and put it on him, trying to walk him off. To us in the black church, we call that the Holy Ghost. When the preacher saw feeling the vibe from the story <laughs> and the thing that he's telling, the preacher saw shaking and screaming, the growly voice. He feel the Holy Ghost in him. He feel it in his soul. And, you know, we just watch him yell and go through that. He just calling out every these scriptures from the Bible. He, James Brown used to catch that Holy Ghost. So when when I was wrestling, that's all I wanted to do is do that Holy Ghost at the end. Shaking. No, I'm not going. I know I can't. I have no more energy, people. I have no. Then, then Sonny, I don't know, walk out there, put the little cape on, and we'll walk off. But I never thought about this, the cake part at the end. I thought about it, but what happened, I was going to have his guy who put the cape on him to put the cape on me. So I forgot in the middle of the ring, I forgot to set it up. He had the cape in his hand. I forgot to set it up. So when I was doing my dance, I went down to my knee, and I looked at the guy. He was standing across the ring smiling, having a good time. James Brown went over to him, grabbed the cape out of his hand, and walked over and and became my cape man. He put the cape on me. There's no, listen, he have never did that to nobody else but one other person, and that was a superstar, Michael Jackson. He had never caped anyone else. And it's, and it's so funny, it's so funny. One day I was looking at this story they had on James Brown on TV. And they were telling all the stuff, all the stuff he did, the accomplishments and everything, the Grammys and and the and, and the uh, all kinds of all kinds of accolades and awards. And then, and highlighted right there, it said he also went in the ring with pro wrestler Ernest Miller, who was the second caked person he had ever caked in his life. Hmm. Look at that. 
And it's all because, now think about this. If you think about how this originated, this originated years before I, I even, this even happened. I just saw, I did it so well that it woke up somebody and it's all this stuff just made history that's going to be there forever. But, you know, wrestling don't talk about that because they don't create history no more. They create stuff that they won't quickly erase because maybe it didn't get over, maybe it wasn't what they wanted to be. You know, think about it. Think about some of the stuff that wrestlers have been put on in the ring to do, and and that could, could have been historical moments, but because they didn't put enough time into it to develop it, it was just a one-time thing. Not with this Jane Brown thing, man. The Jane Brown thing still paying off is something that, like I'm saying, written in this in this bio that he was in the ring with me. And I never thought about James Brown coming, but it went over so well with a white crowd, a wrestler down south, that even when James Brown came out, they were having a great time. I mean, the crowd popped louder than anybody. Matter of fact, when when James Brown came to that curtain, it got so loud in that arena that, man, it felt like the floor was shaking. It was so loud because people had gotten, were listening to me lying and telling them lies, and, and they were, they had it already in their mind, like, what is he up to? He told all these lies, and when James Brown finally came through those curtains, it just erupted. The whole crowd just, bang, popped. He was so happy. You can see the smile on his face, man. Yeah, I mean, they was on their feet the whole time we was in the ring. Yeah, talk about like mega stars. I mean, he's just a huge, huge star for WCW to be associated with him, and now for you to be associated with him, basically for life. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Oh, that's great, man. I mean, it's a story to tell my kids and my grandkids, my kids, because you know they're gonna talk about James Brown like they talk about Elvis and everybody else. And and guess what? Maybe he did use to kick a little ass, you know, being his wife or whatever. <laughs> but you know. He his name is still good right now. They erase him from the history books. They didn't find out he was messing with little kids. They didn't find out he was doing another thing that he wasn't supposed to. Yeah, thank God. And you know, <laughs> you know, with you, it, it's great that you had that. You had the, the like you said, the Holy Ghost thing with the cape and the dance and stuff. But I always remember the great catchphrase: "Somebody call my mama." And like you, you know, you're just saying that with such, you know, classic, you know, healness. But also when you're face saying it, just very, very funny and very catchy. Is that something that you just came up with off the top of your head? Did they tell you you got to have a catchphrase, or is that that's all you? Everything I came up with, I came up with myself. Nobody came to me and told me. You must do this. They let me create it. Then they helped me to use it. You know, like Tara Taylor and people tell me, okay, this one you should say, what's that catchphrase? You should say, that call my mama stuff. You know, you should give them three counts. You should say, I got to register my hands, you know, with the, and each city I go to because they deadly weapons. And by law, I got to give you five seconds to get out the ring. So I'm going to turn my back to give you a little – I'm going to turn my back to give you a little respect. So, But when I turn back around, when I hit the number five, you better be running through the old curtain back there. You know, that was just stuff I came up with. But they helped me place it with the booking company, you know, with the bookers and stuff like that, helped me place it. So I came up with a lot of that stuff that was in my head from growing up. 
You know, I mean, that call my mama was everything I used to say, you know, when I got ready to do anything. If I'm getting ready to go somewhere out for the night, I got to call my mom. If I'm getting ready to go go on a date or go go do anything, the first thing I do, I call my mom. My mom and I are very close. So, you know, I always, hey, I got to call my mom and talk to her before I do this or do that. Just say hello. Well, but somebody call my mom. That's just a great catchphrase. So uh, creative and, and definitely original. As far as the end of WCW, as you know, we hit the last Nitro, and uh, obviously Vince McMahon and the WWF ends up buying WCW. What were your kind of thoughts at this time? Obviously, you know, you still had a couple of years left on your contract. So, what were your thoughts when this all went down? Can you repeat that again? You know, now I'm gonna tell you, I sound a little tired because I I had like a two hour karate class that I'm taking a different style of karate called Oyama, and then and then this style right here, I'm telling you, it's a hell of a workout. It's built to make you tough. So you know, at 54, here I am taking a different style of karate, and I, I'm, I, I'm my instructor is this, is this oh man, he's the hardest, toughest instructor around so you know he work out with us too so it's a hard class so i may be a little tired but i'm enjoying the conversation hey no problem at all just was saying that when wcw was coming to a close and they were ending and vince was going to end up buying them with the wwf what were your thoughts because you still had some time left on your contract were you just thinking man this is my the end of my wrestling career I, I never thought about being the end of my wrestling career because, you know, you only end your wrestling career if you get hurt or you want to end it yourself. Can't nobody end your career too much out there. Too many of the indie mm-hmm. circuit. Now, let me tell you, this is what I thought. When I went to – I knew I could go to WWE anytime because I, I saw people going over there. I had word that they that Vince McMahon really liked my character. So I knew I could do that. But you know what, man? Let me tell you. So I had a boatload of money. My God, though, I had a, a, a twelve-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter, and I was like, okay, do I want to go back? I had just finished coming off the road the year before, two hundred and eighty days a year. So, man, man, I was ready for a vacation, a two-year-long vacation. That you know, when that came, they said you can go right now, or you can just stay home and collect your money. I said I'm staying home, collect my money. I was a stay home dad. I got to take my son to all his basketball games, take my daughter to school every every day for about two or three years, and that's why people didn't hear from me because that's what I was doing. I was staying home, taking my kids, you know, taking care of the home and taking my kids in and out, you know, doing things with them and. And I'm telling you, that was the best three years to four years of my life right there, being able to just stay home and take care of my kids. But then when I went to WWE, right? Right. After I went to WWE, and I went through that two to three years, once I left there, people asked me, what did you do then? Because, you know, I left WWE because they said they couldn't write for me, which I thought was a little strange. How can you not write for somebody that like me? I could do so many things. Vince McMahon used to tell me that every day. Every time you see me, you're talented, man. I'm a fan. You can, you got so many things you want to do. All we had to do is give you a mic and let you go. 
But you know, when I uh, when I got there, I saw it was a little different, and they were doing some different things. And uh, you know, they gave me an opportunity that I was happy. You know, I still appreciate them giving me opportunity being able to work with WWE. But when I left wrestling, you know, I, I didn't realize at the time, but I wasn't thinking about wrestling. I was thinking about going right back into karate, teaching, building my business and school and. So for the first two to three years, or maybe a little longer, I didn't even do indie shows. I would get in calls from, like, Dubai or, or Germany. I would get in calls from all over the world. Hey, can you do this show? And we didn't even have social media then, so they didn't really know how to contact you they, unless they went through somebody else. You know, so, you know, at that moment, about the three years or four years, I, I did nothing with, with wrestling. It was all karate. Now, obviously, towards the end of your – well, the beginning of your WWE run, they had you as a commentator to start and, and then a wrestler. And then, obviously, you know, they could, they see you could talk and they see different things. You said they didn't really have anything for you. Overall, were you happy with your time in WWE or, or really not really what you thought it was all cracked up to be? It was an experience. It wasn't anything that I, I could put down. It was just life experience. You know, they put you into something – you got into something, you dealt with it, and you're not going to sit back and say, hmm, how can I dislike making millions of dollars? <laughs> you know, just because, <laughs> just because it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. No, I love working in WN Pro Wrestling. I was good at it, you know, but it just wasn't my time. And this is what they said at the time. They wanted me to wrestle, but I, I, don't, I didn't understand at that time I understand what they were talking about. They wanted me to go and develop myself and then come right back. That's what they told me. We want you to, you want to be a wrestler? Go develop yourself. Go travel in the circuit. You're going to make a lot of money, Cap, because and we'll come back and get you, which I, you know, but I didn't know the business. So, you know, in the NFL, when I tried out for Atlanta Falcons, when they release you and let you go, they ain't thinking about coming back to get you when you go play in a couple other games. It was just over. But with wrestling, it was totally different. They actually told me, said, you know, go hit the indie circuit and, and, and get established your character and then come back here. And, you know, and, and but me, I failed, to, I failed to understand that with me being so new to the business. I just said, you know what, I'm going to go back to karate. And I'm going to tell you this right there. Lately, I've been doing indie shows and, and for some reason, I got the itch to be back in the ring. I've been doing And each time I do something, do a show, I forget how good I was. I know that sounds kind of arrogant, but it is. I forget how, because, you know, I did a show, I think, in, um, in uh, Chicago. And the guy gave me the mic. And when he gave me the mic, some of the crowd knew me. A lot of them were real little kids. By the time I got off the mic, the whole crowd were with me. You know, the whole crowd were with me. And I said to myself, well, I'm like, damn, I'm good. <laughs> that is great. You had, them, you had them in your hands. It's great. I, I did, a show, did a show last week in Huntsville, Alabama, and it was – it was equally surprising because 
I was going to be the baby phase. And, you know, this is a show they run at least once a month, and they've been doing it for years. So, you know, they got the little main characters and main wrestlers who come there. So the first the first person go out, the crowd pop for them. They'll come back, and I was the main event. So in between matches, they'll say, hey, we know you people came to see Ernest Miller, and you didn't hear nobody in the crowd. I heard one little girl said, not me. <laughs> so, so the next person come out, the next person come out. So when that came to my match, they called my name as required. They called my name. I went through the curtain. By the time I hit the ring and saw doing my stuff, the whole, let me tell you something. When the match was over, I had every kid in pair right there at the door trying to take pictures with me. Told my wife, who had first seen me for the first time wrestle, she was like, "Man, they didn't even act like they knew you were, but then at the end, they were all over you." I said, "That's what you do when you're a pro wrestler. You take what you want. You gain the respect by putting in a good, entertaining show. You know how to entertain people. That's all they want to be entertained." Love it. And as we start to wind it down here, I got to ask you about the wrestler. Obviously, you played the Ayatollah and had a pretty big role in that movie. And that that was one of the things that I think a lot of people will remember you for. Obviously, the karate and the kickboxing and obviously uh, WWE and WWE. But that movie is pretty iconic. What are, you know? How did you get into the wrestler? What are your thoughts on being in that movie, The Wrestler? Let me tell you this right here. I went out to L.A. because I, I met a lot of people out there. And I did a couple of other movies. You know, I did Blood and Bones, The Legend of Bruce Lee. Mm-hmm. I had that little itch to try it because it's so easy. But with, I was so far away from wrestling that when I came home, I, ne- I didn't want to do anything with wrestling. But then I got a call from... Uh, a guy in California said, hey, they're doing a movie in New York. I said, what is it about? He said, they want you. You need to go out there and see the director, who is a well-known director. I said, who? He said, Darren Aronofsky. I said, okay. Then then my manager told me, you need to buy your own ticket and pay your way out. I was like, well, I'm not, wait a minute. Why would I? They want me, but I got to pay my way out there. And I said, I would not do it. But then my wife told me, said, listen, go ahead and just do it. Just see about it. And it's not like you don't have the money. So let, let's say let's say this. I, I paid $500 for a ticket. I ended up making $5 million off a little movie that the movie was $5 million just to make. But we're wow. doing so well all over the world. Over and Listen, I'm still getting checks from... HBO and Showtime and pay TV and from all over the world because they keep running the movie and the residuals and it's the money. Is there. I mean, it not that the movie wasn't a good movie. It surprised me by being the movie that it turned out to be. Great movie. Love it. Love your role. And obviously it's his, you know his villain, if you will. You know the the the, the main villain, if you will, the the main heel for uh, the for Mickey uh, Rourke's character and the rest are just great stuff. And you mentioned obviously Blood and Bone, the Bruce Lee movie. So I mean, you definitely uh, 
had a little bit of a career in Hollywood, to say the least. Well, I still got it. You know, USA and a couple of networks uh, offered to 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 the um, a reality show with me teaching my karate kids, getting ready for the national karate circuit and stuff like that too. And I haven't completely written it off, but you know, I got to see if I want to share that part of my life with you know with the world because now. It's just my life. I don't want to make it my business, you know, because it's, it's it may not be fun anymore. Yes, I, I got you on that. Now, as far as you and your career, not only in pro wrestling, WWE and WCW, but karate, kickboxing, boxing, professional football, when fans look back at Ernest the Cat Miller and they, they you know, they're well in the future we're looking back at you what's going to be the lasting legacy when somebody thinks of Ernest the Cab Miller the same way you think about me entertaining short brief career but he did the most with the time he would have you know and he made fans so you know I get I get email from people man that, and I can do things man that is super cool now you know I I lost my mom about maybe about five years ago. And I remember going on there. I know what I felt like. I know what I was going through. But I remember looking on Facebook one time, and somebody who I didn't know, every now and then you would read something from a fan, and, and you most of the time you just don't want to react to it because you don't want their caller asking you to do stuff. But this fan right here was just telling somebody that he had just lost his mom and how difficult it was, you know, and and it touched me enough to to kind of post something, send him a message saying, Listen, I you know, I, I'm I, I'm sorry for your loss. I understand what you're going through, but things will get better. That was like five years ago. Didn't think anything else about it. Last week I posted uh, something with me doing autograph, and a couple of people responded on them, left a message, and I got a message from that same guy that said, listen, Ernest Miller, I will always be a fan of Ernest Miller. About five years ago when my mom passed, I've never met him, but five years ago when I, I went on to let my close family know that she had passed and relatives know, and he responded and said he was sorry but my laws, he just said, he said, that made me feel so good that I will always have respect for him. And this is somebody I never met. But just to get a fan message like that, you know, I love to be able to touch people just, you know, just because of something I did in the ring. Now, as far as fans reaching out or you being on social media and stuff, where can the fans find Ernest DeCat Miller? Man, you know, Ernest the Cat Miller is Ernest the Cat Miller on, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's Ernest the Cat Miller or either Ernest Miller. And I, I kind of, you know, I love to communicate with you and let you guys in on what I'm doing. So you can always contact me on there. Ernest, thank you so much uh, for all the time you gave us tonight. And I implore every fan out there, 
if you haven't seen the Holy Ghost dance or if you haven't seen you fight or if you haven't seen you pro wrestle or haven't seen you entertain, please go out there and check out Google, YouTube, WWE Network, whatever you got to do, find Ernest Cat Miller, one of the most entertaining guys you will ever, ever see. I guarantee you that. Hey, man, thanks for having me, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.